Back in the summer of 2010, Alex Sue's career as a lawyer was off to a fantastic start. A recent graduate of Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, Sue already had a job offer with Sullivan and Cromwell, the Wall Street law firm. He was also in the running for a prestigious federal clerkship. The only obstacle that remained in his path was the New York bar exam. When I first walked out of that exam room, I did not feel good about it. And the thing is that a lot of my friends who also took the bar exam, they didn't feel good about it as well. And we were told from a lot of people who've taken it in the past, everyone feels like they didn't pass, but you'll probably be fine. Um, you know, people would say things like, if you went to a good school, if you got a good LSAT score, don't worry about it, you're probably okay. So that was in July of 2010. After taking a month off, Sue packed up his things and moved to New York to start his job in the litigation group at Sullivan and Cromwell. The bar exam, little more than an unpleasant afterthought. I was about a month in at Sullivan and Cromwell, and I remember right when the results came out, I, I had an office mate. You know, in New York, in big law, everyone shares offices, and you know, he and I got close, and we were just talking. And then it was a Friday afternoon, um, and I was like, "Oh my God, bar results are out!" Thinking like we're gonna celebrate. It's Friday. Um, my girlfriend, who is uh, now my wife, she was gonna be in town um, because we had a long distance relationship. So I was so really excited about the weekend. Open up. I open up the email, and it it does not. Immediately, I knew something was wrong because um, when I opened the the attachment, that first line just jumped out at me. It said. You are hereby notified that you did not pass the New York State Bar Examination. And so my heart, everything just dropped. Like, I felt like I had this narrative of my life where I, I had been, you know, I struggled as a student young when I was younger. Um, I didn't think I would do well in law, but I, I did well in law school and I thought I had turned everything around. So when I, when I received this news, I was like, all right, I'm being exposed. I, I think I realized that uh, maybe law is not for me and, and this bar exam has exposed me. Oh, that sounds just awful. So after the initial shock, were you thinking, okay, I'll just take the test again? Was it any consolation that there are lots of stories of famous attorneys who failed the bar exam? Um, I thought I was screwed. I, I thought it was, it was over because if you kind of Google successful lawyers who, who failed the bar exam, you get a list of celebrities and politicians. So you don't, what you don't get are, are judges and you know, um, well-known practicing attorneys. How did Sullivan and Cromwell take it? Were they understanding? So I took the weekend to myself um, to kind of absorb what happened. And then on Monday, I immediately told the bosses, the, you know, all the people I work with uh, about the news. Everyone was very kind about it. And, and the firm said, don't worry about it. You'll get them the next time. Just, you know, do what you need to do. Um, and there's an interesting wrinkle to this story that uh, at the time I was in the process of applying for a federal clerkship. So um, federal clerkships are very difficult to get. Um, they're often reserved for the top students at the top schools. And so I, even my, with my credentials, I didn't think I would have a chance, but um, for one reason or another, I, I got into the interview process with a newly appointed judge. And I thought, well, this is like terrible timing because I've now got to tell him that, that I failed the bar exam. Um, so that call was even harder. I can't even imagine how difficult that call must have been. 
Okay, so before we trigger the lawyers in our audience anymore, we should just tell people what happened. So, so after that happened, I ended up passing the, the New York bar exam the second time. Uh, I was actually studying at nights and weekends while I was clerking. Uh, the judge uh, was very supportive. My co-clerks were very supportive. I mean, everyone knew there, but I passed the second time. I returned to New York to the firm. Um, for a lot of reasons, that job didn't work out for me. And then um, my girlfriend at the time, who again is now my wife, she, received, she got a job in, in California. So I moved to California. And so I, was, I moved to California four years out of law school and I thought to myself, my God, I gotta do this again. Like, I now have to take the California bar. So that created a lot of stress too. And by the time I learned that I had passed the California bar, I was five years out of law school and I felt like this bar thing was just killing me. Like, it, it really, I felt like it, 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 it hurt a lot of my career development. The fact that I needed to move to a new state and take a new bar exam meant that, you know, finding a, a job was hard. Uh, when I found the job, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. And so uh, it was very frustrating. And between that and also understanding like what you do as a litigator, I realized that maybe I should try something different. And, and so, you know, my sixth year-ish out of law school, I, that's when I decided to leave the practice of law, go into legal tech to do uh, sales and business development. So these days you are the head of community development at Ironclad, a legal tech startup. You're also a bit of a TikTok star. In fact, one of the things you've posted about recently was your experience with failing the bar exam. So with so much stigma attached to the bar, why did you decide to share your story? Yeah, some even would say it's not a stigma. It's an accurate statement that if you can't pass the bar, you're going to struggle in practice. Um, you know, when I, when I heard what, what the firm said, what the judge said, like I felt good, but at the same time, I felt like they were just being nice. And, you know, maybe they thought, hey, this guy is, might be a decent lawyer, but, but he's not going to be outstanding. Um, I felt that way too. And so I don't know if you know this, Adam, but, but I never talked about this. Like I, I remember thinking that I, I couldn't hang out with people, not because like I needed to study, but because I didn't want to, I didn't want people to know. Um, I wanted to keep it only within a certain limited group of people. And that maybe one day after I passed, I would just kind of, you know, pretend it never happened, I guess. Um, and, you know, the reason why I've, I've since then gone public with it is just because I, I've left that world. I'm in legal tech. I thought, well, it doesn't matter anymore. That's why I shared it. And I, I realized that that's why you only hear stories from politicians and celebrities because for those people, it doesn't matter. But if you are, say, a, you know, chair of the appellate group at a big law firm and you fail the bar the first, first time, you're not going to want to share that, which is why it was so powerful for me when, when I saw the DMs and the, and the messages, like people who had these backgrounds who were telling me that they had this experience. And even now, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. I think a lot of successful lawyers ended up doing successfully what I wanted to do, which is have a great career and just pretend it never happened. So, so I think the stigma does exist. I think that it doesn't help that people don't talk about it publicly. Alex Sue is the head of community development at Ironclad. He's also on Twitter and TikTok, and you should definitely follow him. He's really funny. And of course, my name is Adam Allington, and this is the Uncommon Law Podcast. And we've come to the third and final episode in our three-part series on the bar exam. 
If you haven't heard the first two episodes, I would strongly urge you to go back and give them a listen, as we'll often be referring back to points made earlier. Okay, so as was the case with Alex, so much of the frustration with the bar exam isn't just because it's a really hard test, but because of the fact that every state has their own individual licensing requirements and bureaucracies, which means that over the course of one's career, you might have to take and retake the bar multiple times. So this is what we're going to focus on today. Does it have to be this way? Or is there a better system, something like a national bar exam instead of this patchwork of tests? Now, I think the reason I was asked to come today, sort of the center of the floor show, and that's to talk about one of the task force recommendations, and that was suggesting that uh, we examine more closely the concept of a uniform bar exam. This is Erica Moser. She's the former president of the National Conference of Bar Examiners, speaking at a panel on legal education at the University of South Carolina back in 2014. The uniform bar exam that Erica was talking about is the NCBE's answer to this problem of license portability. The uniform bar exam means that if you sit for the exam in one state and achieve a score, that score will be portable. So in terms of getting young lawyers productive more quickly and getting them to a point where they can, if nothing else, secure federal employment or jobs that require one license, the uniform bar exam has a great deal to recommend it. It has its skeptics, but as we have found when we began with one, two, three, and now 14 jurisdictions, uh, the sky has not fallen. So that if we take one central set of competencies and administer an examination, you as young lawyers, you can work your way in there very quickly and not have to deal with preparation for and endurance of something that absolutely nobody remembers with affection. Since its creation in 2011, the UBE has since expanded to 41 of 56 jurisdictions. In addition to allowing for greater mobility for lawyers, it also lowers costs and streamlines test administration and grading. So what's not to like? Well, according to some, plenty. It's like wearing a hat that you attempt to make, you know, as a one-size-fit-all. And it, I think it's, it's hurt our standing. Alan Schinkman is a retired judge who was appointed chair of a special task force of the New York State Bar Association that recently recommended withdrawing from the UBE. Judge Schinkman, I've been talking to a number of people from around the legal industry who have been very critical of the bar exam for a number of reasons, mainly because it's a closed book timed exam, which critics say doesn't accurately test one's legal competency. But if I understand you correctly, that's not your criticism here. You're not against the idea of bar exams, just the UBE. So could you elaborate a little bit? I mean, I do agree that there are questions that can require too much rote memorization and raise sorts of issues that lawyers should be able with a modicum of research to find the answer to. It's the, 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 fair, the, the criticism is also, in my view, taken hold because of the advent of the so-called uniform bar exam. 
because in order to gain traction across 30 plus American jurisdictions, you can't ask about the law of any particular jurisdiction. They have to make it uh, homogeneous. And that tends to make it irrelevant. Uh, for example, they've questioned people on the model probate code, which has not been adopted in its uh, pristine form by anybody and has been only adopted by a handful of jurisdictions. And those that have adopted it, their provisions conflict. Is that particularly useful? No, in my opinion, it is not. And it doesn't meet what I think the, the fundamental purpose of the bar exam is. The NCBE actually announced earlier this year that it will be phasing out the current version of the UBE in favor of a more integrated test design. But your main criticism of the UBE is that it's become too general, testing what you and others have called the law of nowhere. Exactly, because it is, they, they call it the state of Franklin, which doesn't exist on a map. And it's purely a device to try to develop a method of testing basic principles of law that may vary from state to state. And because they vary from state to state, the efforts in law school to teach that law basically wind up not helping students at all because students don't practice nowhere, they practice somewhere. Why do we have a bar exam? I submit that it's to protect the public from incompetent lawyers. We want to make sure that people who practice law have a minimum competence within which to do so. A recent study by Professor Deborah Merritt at Ohio State tells us that lawyers in their early years of practice work primarily with state and local law, not federal law. Federal law is easy to test across 30 states because by and large, it's the same. It's the same federal civil procedure code. It's the same geography of federal courts. It's the same evidence code. That's not true in states, particularly in states that have complex uh, statutes and common law principles like New York. New York has, depending upon how you count them, either 11 or 13 trial courts. And we have been very critical of the uniform bar exam because we're admitting people to practice who don't know what court to go to. How does that protect the public? I don't think it does. As I said, the task force which you chaired has recommended withdrawing from the UBE in order to place more emphasis on state law. So what would you like to see put in its place? We've written three reports. In our initial report, we were of the view that New York should go back to the way it was in the early 1980s, which is take the multi-state and have a separate New York day as day two. So just to be clear, in the 80s, the New York bar exam was split between the multi-state exam on day one and the second day of testing was state law, which made up a full 50% of your total score. Yes, and that seemed like a legitimate compromise. And those people who wanted the benefit of portability, if they wanted to, could take a third day that would have the rest of the multi-state. But it wouldn't get you admitted in New York unless you took the specific New York test. What changed is that in January of this year, the NCBE said, in five years, we're getting rid of these individualized components of our exam. We're not going to have a multi-state 
uh, essay. We're not going to have a multi-state bar. We're not going to have performance tests. Instead, we're going to sprinkle elements of those tests within our new two-day test. And as a result, you wouldn't have the ability to break out grades. And because of that and some other things that are happening, we eventually, in our most recent report, came to the conclusion that New York should pull away from the UBE and from the NCB. Alan Schenkman was the presiding justice on the second department of the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division. He also served as chair of the State Bar Association's Testing Task Force. When we come back, we'll hear more ideas for bringing the bar exam into the 2020s and whether those changes address the concerns many people have. But before we do, a short message for the law students who are listening from the B-Law Mothership. Stand out and ahead of your class with Bloomberg Law. Use topic-specific practice centers on key legal areas such as bankruptcy, ethics, and intellectual property for the primary and secondary sources you need to impress your professors and make law review. Plus, with legal research tools such as B-Site and SmartCode that enhance your research, you're sure to make the grade and make your mark. So, what are you waiting for? Your future begins now. Start smart with Bloomberg Law. And we're back. As commonplace as the UBE has become, several of the largest legal markets, including states like California, Virginia, and Florida, do not accept UBE scores, which means that, for lots of attorneys, those portability barriers are still very much in place. You can't just pick up and move to another jurisdiction and start practicing and everything is just fine. I mean, it is a process. Rich Maltby is an attorney based in Gainesville, Florida. He's also a friend I've known since college. After graduation, while I was taking it easy working on ski resorts out west, Rich was busy going to law school in Missouri. He's also got a fantastic wife and two amazing daughters. And that's important to the story, as you'll hear in a minute. So back in 2014, at the request of his then-employer, Rich enrolled in a master's in taxation program at the University of Florida in Gainesville. But just as he was about to finish that degree, his family decided that they kind of preferred the palm trees and sunshine of Florida to life in the Missouri Ozarks. So Rich was faced with a predicament. So I ended up staying here, which meant I had to take this little test, the Florida bar exam. And because of the period of years that I had already been past the bar exam in Missouri, I was required to take the federal part again. So I had to take the Florida part, the federal part, and then you have to also take a separate um, ethics exam, the MPRE. So the fact that you had already been working as a lawyer, did you feel like that gave you a leg up at all? I did not feel like I had a leg up. Um, in fact, I just Googled real quickly what were the topics, all of the topics that were tested. And um, what caught my attention was areas that I was not proficient in. Family law, criminal procedure, constitutional law. Uh, they have other very state-specific laws here in Florida regarding homestead. So I really felt like I was teaching myself areas of law. It did not matter that I had umpteen years of experience. I mean, it was all new to me, just like it was new to the person coming straight out of law school. Whoo, boy, that's a tough one. So 
How concerned were you about what would happen if you didn't pass the bar? I mean, by this point, it's been, what, 13 years since you were in law school? You know, I had already proclaimed that I'm going to be in Florida. So I'm all in. If I don't pass this exam, the question is, okay, am I going to, you know, with my tail between my legs, go back to maybe Missouri and say, hey, can you help me out? I I kind of fell on my face in Florida. I need to give me my job back, whatever it is. Um, so when I got those results, boy, that was a great, great day. Like, okay, now I can really move on to the next phase of my life and got the ticket to do it. Some people have speculated that the reason certain states don't offer reciprocity is that it limits the supply of lawyers, so there's more work for local attorneys. Now, I'm sure that these states would say that's not the case, that it's about the fact that every state has different laws and we need to make sure people are qualified, et cetera, et cetera. But do you feel like maybe there is some element of protectionism going on here? Well, California, New York, Florida are generally considered the three hardest or harder bars to take. Um, When I took the test, I think the bar passage rate was somewhere in the 50s or 60s. So, you know, I think it's really more, hey, we're a tourist state. We can't just willy-nilly let anybody and everybody just show up, hang their shingle, and say they're a Florida lawyer. Rich Maltby handles Florida-based clients for the litigation practice group of Sandberg Phoenix. Rich, I'm sure you never thought you'd have a college buddy with a podcast calling you up to ask you about your experiences with the bar exam, but I'm glad I did, and I'm glad that you agreed to talk. So thanks again. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. It's been great to talk about. As we mentioned before, another state with a reputation for protectionism is California. In addition to not offering reciprocity, the Golden State has among the highest cut scores on the bar exam in the country. So I think it's a reputation that it's earned. It's incredibly difficult to pass the California bar exam. It's it's doable, but it is a entirely separate form of preparation that graduates have to go through. And I'm not sure that that's what a bar exam should require. This is Natalie Rodriguez. And I am the assistant dean for academic success and associate professor of law at Southwestern Law School. Um, Primarily, I oversee all of our programming and courses designed to help students succeed both in law school and on the bar exam. Natalie, like several other people I've spoken to for this podcast, you're also a member of a state commission looking into the future of the bar exam. So what was the impetus for doing this? Was there an event or tipping point moment when California decided it needed to rethink the bar exam? So there's been, I think, just a lot of both evaluation and even criticism of the bar exam in general across the country. Uh, Bar results started declining uh, beginning with around the July 2014 bar exam. That was true across the country and definitely true in California. And so that lent itself to considering what's happening with the bar exam. And from there, questions as to, is the exam doing what it was designed to do, which was a licensure exam 
that was to measure minimum competency for the legal profession. So I think that's how a commission like this became then a natural next step. So several other states have also impaneled commissions charged with recommending changes to the bar exam. This could mean changes to the test itself or going the diploma privilege route like Wisconsin, even doing away with the test altogether. So what ideas or options are currently on the table for California? So we've heard from jurisdictions that currently employ alternative pathways to licensure that do not require a bar examination. We've also heard from organizations like New York that not too long ago adopted the UBE but is now reconsidering. We've heard from experts in licensure exams. We heard from the NCBE and its plans. And now that we've gone through that initial uh, information gathering, we're moving into two working subcommittees. Uh, the subcommittee on the pathway to licensure through a licensing exam. So that committee would look at if there is a bar exam, what would that bar exam then look like? And then the second committee is a pathway to licensure through a non-exam alternative. Has there been any consideration toward adopting the uniform bar exam in California, as so many other states have done? This makes it obviously easier for scores to transfer between states, but some also say that the UBE is easier to study for and pass. Well, so first of all, yes, there's a lot of jurisdictions currently that have adopted the UBE, but they've adopted the UBE in its current form. I'm not sure that the UBE is all that different than the California bar exam, other than the subject matter tested. I still think that the criticisms that apply to both the California and UBE exist. So whether California should have done UBE or continued with its own exam, um, I think that misses a little bit of the bigger issue. But even then, those jurisdictions that have adopted the UBE, they adopted it in its current form. Who knows what they're going to do once this new exam comes out? Maybe that new exam isn't what they have in mind for their jurisdiction. So I don't think California should adopt the UBE just because a large number of jurisdictions have adopted it in the past. I also think there's other ways that we can address the portability issue without having to adopt that uniform bar exam. Natalie Rodriguez is a law professor and one of 17 members of the California Blue Ribbon Commission on the Future of the Bar Exam. The commission is scheduled to present its final recommendations in late 2022. And as Natalie just mentioned, the NCBE also has plans to retool the uniform bar exam under what is being called the Next Generation Bar Exam. Cindy Martin is the chief judge on the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Western District. She also chaired the NCBE task force charged with recommending these next-gen changes. Judge Martin, thank you so much for joining me. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Judge Martin, back in January, the NCBE Board of Trustees approved your task force's recommendations. Could you just highlight some of the key features of this new exam? And how will it be different from, say, the current version of the uniform bar exam? The key features involve a change in focus with respect of the content of the exam, 
um, a, an emphasis on how the exam will be administered to ensure as much as we can fairness in terms of a uniform applicant experience and a change in the overall design focus of the exam uh, so that the feel of the exam is more integrated and uh, more like the real practice of law. So more integrated. Does that mean the new test will put more emphasis on skills such as legal analysis and problem solving and less on memorization of legal principles and doctrine, which I think has been one of the key criticisms of the test in recent years? The movement to an integrated exam design is intended to focus on the foundational concepts and principles you really would expect a lawyer to have in their back pocket. And you're going to be focusing more on the assessment of lawyering skills in terms of uh, issue spotting, rationale, logic, writing, those kinds of things. And so that feels like what one would run into, frankly, in a client environment. Um, That is important from a fairness standpoint because it in my opinion, will will do a lot to feel like to an applicant that that assessment model is is more in line, more of a touchstone to the practice of law. But that will mean you're shrinking the doctrinal knowledge one innately has to have when they walk into that exam. As you pointed out, the new integrated testing format will reduce slightly the number of subjects tested. So another criticism of the UBE is that it's become too universal at the expense of testing knowledge on local state law. In fact, the New York State Bar Association recently recommended withdrawing from the UBE because of this law of nowhere criticism. So I would beg to differ with a characterization of the exam as testing the law of nowhere. It's testing the law of of everywhere. because those foundational concepts and principles and skills are of general application to every single person in the country who has a license to practice law. There are a lot of ways jurisdictions can address the specific concerns they may have about unique components of state law that they would want a lawyer in their state to have access to or exposure to or even knowledge of. But realistically, there is no exam ever that is going to be able to drill down into those very particular, discrete, unique aspects of state law. There are other means by which lawyers can be exposed to that kind of information to prepare them for practice. It does not need to be the bar exam. Judge Martin, as you've mentioned, test scores are portable between jurisdictions who accept the UBE, which currently stands at 41 with the addition of Michigan a few months ago. So could any of these future changes alter the basic deal struck between states when they signed on to the UBE? The UBE is is an agreement. It's an agreement amongst states that if we're all giving the same exam on the same day, why should it ever be that an applicant would have to set more than once for that exam? because it's just the right thing to do from a fundamental fairness standpoint for applicants. And so the UBE is less the test and more an understanding about what could be done with the score being portable from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The next gen of the exam is not going to change that one bit. If anything, the next gen of the exam builds upon the amazing momentum that has grown out of the 
creation of the concept of the uniform bar exam and the notion of portable scores, such that you now have a very high saturation of jurisdictions who get it, who understand that the right thing to do is to let applicants move that score around once they've set for the exam. So several times you've mentioned fairness as it relates to test takers, but also for jurisdictions and law schools. But Another criticism that comes up quite often is the issue of fairness as it relates to minorities or people who might not have access to the same study materials and programs that are really necessary to be successful on the bar exam. So do any of these changes address fairness or equity in that sense? On the issue generally of exams being a barrier to the practice, you know, I I think the difference in performance uh, amongst different groups is not unique to the legal profession. I think the same concerns present themselves for doctors, for teachers, for engineers, frankly, for every level of education. And it's a very serious problem. And I certainly appreciate that. Uh, But a part of the issue is to also recognize that the cause for that difference in performance is not so much the exam itself or the education model itself or the classroom experience itself. There are other causes that we need to address. And so in the meantime, for organizations like the conference that are producing exam materials, what we really need to be doing is all we can to be working hard to close that gap with active bias training for our drafters, for example, active look at results on exam questions to determine whether there's been a difference in performance based upon the group who answered a question. Uh, With the next gen, we have one of our work groups that is focused exclusively on diversity and in fairness issues so that every step we have this overlay discussion about, is this fair? Is this going to promote equity? Are we doing all we can from an applicant fairness standpoint, regardless of demographic, uh, to ensure a fair and uniform exam experience. These changes are scheduled to be phased in over the next five years. Why such a long implementation period? I mean, if there are problems that need to be fixed, why wait five years? Well, again, I think one thing you have to take into consideration there is that these recommendations are not designed to fix a problem. They're designed as with any appropriate licensure exam model to be evolving the exam to the ever-changing practice of law. And boy, oh boy, (laughs) it's interesting you make the comment about why is it going to take so long because we have others who believe, and I think appropriately so, that five years is a very aggressive schedule for the amount of incredibly hard work that needs to be done. Um, Once you get through the process of actually building a prototype for a new exam, there's an even more important feature of phase-in, and that's the fairness component. We have got to provide adequate notice to our applicants, to the legal academy, to our administrators and the jurisdictions who administer this exam to allow them to have a sense of, in fact, what will be expected of applicants and what will be expected of the administrators in terms of the administration of this exam. And that's a couple of years at least in and of itself. So from the time you began the process of formulating content specs, building your prototype, notice, rule changes, et cetera, uh, five years doesn't seem like quite such a long time, Adam, but we're going to get there. Cynthia Martin is a judge on the Missouri Court of Appeals. She also served as chair of the National Conference of Bar Examiners Testing Task Force. Judge Martin, it was very nice speaking with you. 
It is my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that is where we will conclude our three-part series on the bar exam. One thing I think I can take away from all the interviews I've done for this series is that the issue of how we license new attorneys is going through a profound period of change, perhaps one of the greatest since the advent of law schools. As the practice of law moves deeper and deeper into specialization, the skills required of lawyers will likely grow even farther away from the general purpose retail attorneys of years past. And that includes perhaps learning skills that are outside the practice of law. But here again, the basic point that many people make is that credentialing lawyers by forcing them to take a closed book timed exam just isn't doing what we think it is. And this also includes many people who think the bar exam disadvantages minorities. On this point, however, the NCBE's communications department reached out to me directly to strongly disagree with this characterization of the bar exam as a flawed test of competency for lawyers. One other note, if you've been listening through each episode in this series in chronological order, I want to point out that episode one mistakenly stated that test takers had 45 seconds per question on the multi-state portion of the bar exam. That was incorrect. It was actually one minute and 45 seconds per question. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, with assistance from Sam Skolnick and Chris Upfer. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group podcasts and also served as editor for this episode. Please stay tuned for future topics we'll be announcing shortly. And as always, if you have any tips or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to me directly at aallington at bloomberg.net. Thank you so much again. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.